Um, I just want you to have a look at this first slide that's coming up, and I want you just to get to have a good look at it, and then I want you to talk to a neighbour and discuss with your neighbour what country that slide was taken in and why. Okay, so have a little look at that, and then just chat to your neighbour and say where you think it is and why. There you go. Okay, all right. Um, any, any offerings? England? Okay, some of the giveaways you would have thought it's in England would be the telephone box, perhaps that Victorian Gothic cathedral, the cobblestone streets, the Tudor designs, the hedgerows, and all that sort of thing. But actually it's in China. Um, here we go. Uh, this is called Thames Town, um, and it's in the Xiongqiang district of China, about 40 kilometers southwest of Shanghai, and it was designed to house 10,000 people. It was part of a 2001 initiative by the Chinese, by the, um, the mayor and the council of Shanghai, to actually decentralize the city. And so they built about nine of the, or 10 of these uh, little towns all around the edge of Shanghai. And in fact, Thames Town, which you can see there, I think you can probably see it, the English one. Let's see, point that one out. Thames Town is that one just there, the English one. That was actually built on a rice paddy um, in three years at a cost of $250 million, oh, sorry, $550 million. Um, and um, the trouble is it's empty. Um, the, and most of the other towns, I, I haven't done some research on the other towns, but Thames Town is it's called a ghost town. And what happened was uh, some people in China bought some apartments and they bought a house there, but they never ended up living in them for three reasons. Uh, firstly, because the distance to Shanghai is about 40 to 50 k's, and secondly, they like, don't like getting out of bed too early because it's the commute in the morning. So most of the people who bought houses actually live in Shanghai. So you might ask, well, um, you know, what's, what's the point of this town? And the point is now that now they've decided that it hasn't really worked, they have these themed weddings um, and um, having an English wedding is uh, very, very popular in China, and those that can afford it um, have their photographs taken outside that church and through the streets. Um, but in, in essence, it's an empty town. And my point, the point I want to make today is, what's the point of buildings if it's got no people in it? What's the point of that town if there's no one living there, apart from it being maybe a tourist trap. And that's the theme that I want to look at today. I want to look at this uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 and what God might be saying to us um, as a church, uh, what might God be saying through Nehemiah 7. So in my Nehemiah 7, we hear that the building of the wall has been completed and it's a miraculous building. 
Um, despite the opposition from surrounding enemies, um, despite some um, tensions within, um, they got the job done in 52 days. Now, some archaeologists have found one little section of the wall, and if you look very closely, can you see that little, just to the left of the temple, there's a little red line on the wall there. That's where the archaeologists have discovered the remains of Nehemiah's wall. And so what they've done is they've reconstructed what Nehemiah's Jerusalem would probably have looked like. And the wall, they reckon, is about four kilometres long. It's about 12 and a half feet high in some places. In some places, it's 17 feet high. And it's over eight feet wide. It's wide enough for people to walk around the wall um, two people aside or three people aside, as you'll see later in later sessions when the procession walks around the walls of Jerusalem. Now, this was all built in 52 days. And this city would eventually house about 5,000 people. Now, that doesn't sound very much to us, but in those days, that was quite a large city. Most of the people who had come back from, um, from uh, Persia uh, were actually housed in villages and towns all around. Hardly any of them lived in Jerusalem because the houses were all in rubble and disrepair. So what we know, just historically, is that first of all, um, Zerubbabel came back under Cyrus's leadership and he started to rebuild the foundations of the temple. And then um, under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, um, Ezra was allowed to come back. And Ezra started to complete the temple. He actually completed the temple. And then his, his commission was to restore the worship life of Jerusalem, of the Jewish people. And then, of course, Nehemiah arrives. And Nehemiah's job was to build the walls and to repopulate the city. That was his task. But I note um, in Nehemiah 7 a very noteworthy verse which in, Nehemiah, in verse 4 and 5, we read this. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. There were no, house, no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it. So what he did was he... God put this administrative task in Nehemiah's heart. And I want to say that we need to affirm the ministry of those people who are administrators. Nehemiah was an administrator, and God put it into his heart. Um, the church is not just about ministry, which is about worship in a place like this. It's about our whole lives. And so those people who are administrators in the church... Um, we need to um, commend them, as we do when we pray for the offering. We pray for those who administrate that offering. Um, but he found this genealogy, and he probably found the genealogy which we heard today actually in the temple records. As we read there, I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come from the first return. This was probably found, as I say, in the temple records. Um, and it's important because it was God's idea to find the records. 
And secondly, because as uh, an author called Williamson says, uh, the ultimate goal is to determine who had ancestral roots in the city and should therefore move into it from the surrounding areas. So from verses 7 to 72, um, which we read today, there are kind of five categories of people that are recorded in this genealogy. Um, First of all, they're the returnees by descent from verses 6 to 25. Then there are returnees by city. They didn't all come to Jerusalem. They went to many of the areas around Jerusalem. And thirdly, there was the returnees um, of the temple and all the related personnel, like the priests, the Levites, the singers, uh, the gatekeepers, and the servants, and so on. Uh, Lots of them. Uh, Fourthly, there were undocumented Israelites, priests and singers. And finally... Um, all the servants and the animals. The total number of returnees was 50,942. That's 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camper vans, I mean camels, sorry, just just see if you're awake, uh, and 6,720 uh, don- donkeys. And then in verse 7, we, uh, 70, to 73, we see this incredibly extravagant giving. Really extravagant giving. I'm talking about real money. Lots and lots of it. And what we are told is that Nehemiah led the giving. The leaders led the giving. Um, And it was extremely extravagant. Uh, The total amount of darics, which is a drachma, was 41,000 darics in total was given. Now, a derrick was one month's wages for a typical soldier. And I worked it out that 41,000 derricks is at 3,416.6 years of earnings. Now, if you take a New Zealand corporal who earns about $55,000 a year and you multiply that by 3,416, you get over 187 million dollars was given. Plus priestly garments. Plus silver miners. Silver miners are worth a lot of money as well. And so when God has a plan, generous giving always follows. When God's plan is being adhered to, and people have that sense, this is God's plan, people will give to God's plan. They will. It certainly happened here. See, it was God's plan to bring the people back. It was God's plan to build the temple. It was God's plan to build the walls. It was God's plan to repopulate the city. These are God's plans. And of course, his idea was that Israel was the expression of God on earth a totally worshipping, giving, and loving community so that nations of the world would see that they are representing God and they'll want to become like them and worship the one true God. That was God's kind of plan. So the point, what I want to touch on now is what applications from Nehemiah 7 might we apply to our lives today? And the first one is this. um, Because... Because we've got to think about what is our vision? What is our mission? You know, our vision, isn't it, is to 
um, is to glorify God. Our, our vision here is to be a flourishing Christian community. It's to flourish across the ages, numbers, and so on and so forth, and to connect people to God and to one another. That is our vision and mission. And the first point is this. Fellowship with God is the very purpose of life. The reason why we are alive is to have fellowship with God. That's our reason. Some of you will know about the Westminster Confession, which is um, a, a catechism. It's a foundational document for reformed worship and for Christian lifestyle and practice. And the very first question in the catechism is this. What is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer to that question is that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. To enjoy God. Jesus said this, I've come that they might have life in all its fullness. That's what our purpose is, to fully enjoy God. You know, one of the outstanding features of this whole passage is that one third of all the verses are devoted to the temple, to temple garments, and to temple workers, to singers, to Levites, that's what it's devoted to. You see, the temple represented the centre of Jewish life. It was the presence of God. God told them to build a temple. It was his plan. And we read right at the end of uh, verse 73, we read the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the temple servants along with, the certain, with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Um, so Israel was a nation called by God to represent him. You know, today in our society, um, the church is called, we are called to be the body of Christ in the world. We are called to represent Christ to the world. That's who we are. We should be the happiest, most joyful, most purposeful people on the planet, the church. But we're together. We're not as individuals, we're together. And, you know, one of the things about the society that we live in is that God has kind of been pushed to one side, hasn't he? He really has been pushed to one side. Um, you know, Bible and schools, they, they want other religious practices in schools as well, not just the Bible. Bible and schools was a, a great ministry for many years. Another thing that's happened is that, um, and in some ways I agree with it because I think it's hypocritical, that the, the prayer with Parliament was a Christian prayer at the beginning, that most of the people in Parliament are not Christians and they pray this prayer, and that's been pushed to the side. Um, and I remember doing a little excursion down here to kind of argue with our council, our city council, about not allowing people to work on Easter Sunday. Give them a break. But, you know, our festivals, Christmas and Easter, they just become, what do they become? They become kind of commercial things, haven't they? You know, commercial opportunities to make money and stuff like that. But of course to have a rest as well, which is really important. Um, so I think that rather than complain about the, these things, I think this gives the church a fantastic opportunity to put mission right back in the centre of everything we do. 
And that's why you've got on the doorway, walking out there, you know, you're now entering the mission field. Well, sometimes the mission field's even in here too. Bringing friends along to hear the mission of God, to hear the heart of God. And I'm hoping that some of the things that the church is currently looking at will help to bring God back into the centre of things. Thinking of Adrian Wales' ministry, exploring this possibility of a mission centre here. Um, and, and I think of... Um, um, I think of the inner city chaplaincy and the court chaplaincy where people are starting to connect with businesses and the court and stuff like that. Um, When we run Alpha down in a cafe in the middle of town, the idea is to try and bring God back into the centre, allow people to come to a commercial place to hear the word of God. A lot of people won't come to church, um, but they might go to a cafe to discuss spiritual things who knows so the second point i want to make so the first point there was that fellowship with god is the very purpose of our lives that's what we're designed to do the second point is this church is not really about buildings it's actually about people that's what church is you see the temple was complete the walls were built but what use is a temple in a city without people what's the point Just like, what was the point of Thamestown? There's no no one living there. What a waste of money and time. So here we have Nehemiah listing the people who had returned from um, city, uh, returned from, for whom the city and the worship of Jerusalem could be restored. And it's the same today about church. Um, um, We have this genealogy. We have a phone book. Have you got your photograph in the phone book? That's our genealogy. Well, it's sort of not a genealogy. It's a list of those people in our fellowship. And, and, and I think it's great to have a phone book so I know who Hein van Zale is, for example. I can look at, oh, that's what Hein looks like. Oh, yeah, that's right. I know Hein. You know, that's what the, fo- the purpose of the phone... Fo- Some people say, I don't want my name in the phone book. don't want my photograph. But we're a community. We're a church. Let's get real. We need to get to know each other and love each other. That's what, we, that's what we're here for. Um... Do you know that it was only in the th- second part of the third century that they started to build churches? Up until that time, Christians worshipped in homes. They worshipped by riverbanks. Um, they worshipped on the steps of the temple. Um, they worshipped in prisons. Um, they worshipped in the open air. They gathered together to worship, and that's where the church is. Where people are is that's where the church is. You see, Paul says this. He says, you are living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the stones of the building. On the one hand, we need to be thankful for our resources. We really do need to be thankful for resources. But on the other hand, we mustn't let the resources that we have dictate the mission. It needs to be what God's telling us to do to dictate the mission of the church. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus cleansed the temple and the Jews were fed up with him, he said to them, you tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they said, what? This temple took 45 years to build and you can rebuild it in three days? And he said, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about my body. See, where Christ is, that's where the temple is. That's where the church is. So when two or three people gather together, that's where the church is. 
So when people gather in a connect group to worship and to learn, that's where the church gathers. When, when we go down uh, to Tiaradoa Ministry and just a great collection of people down there who love the Lord, who start the day off with devotions and minister to people, that's where the church is. When people go out to Onorahi, some men go out to Onorahi on Wednesday and gather around um, Neil Ryan's pool table, they begin with prayer. They end with a devotion. And they support one another beyond the pool table. That's where the church meets. Sue and I were driving back on Friday from Onorahi. We'd, ha we'd had a swim. And we looked and we saw a whole lot of icons boys doing a paper pickup with some great men who are looking after them. That's where the church is. Men and women who love God, who gather together, that's where the church is. So when we come here on Sunday and we gather, although we've got this fine building, it's us, the body of Christ, that is the church, not this building. This is a worship centre. We call it church, but we are the church. You see, people want to join a community. They don't want to join a building. They want to join a community. People are crying out in our nation for community. That's why the gangs are so large. They're looking for people that will accept them and love them for who they are. That's what a gang is. And we're actually God's gang, to be honest. We should have patches on our back. We're God's gang, aren't we? We are God's gang. I think we are. Um, you know, people need a community where they're not condemned, where they're not being judged, but they're accepted for who they are. So I want to say, let's hold lightly to our church buildings and let's be about building up one another and building up the church, reaching out, building up, reaching out, building up, sharing the love of God. That takes prayer, it takes commitment, it takes time, but it's our joy. Mission should be our joy. And the third point I want to make is um, following God's plans will always require sacrifice and generosity. It will always require sacrifice and generosity. You know, what I noted in Nehemiah 7 was this, that the people who would eventually be called to live in Jerusalem actually were living in all the villages and towns around Jerusalem. And 5,000 of them were going to have to uproot their businesses, their farms, their connections to go and live in the city. That was a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. Jesus said this, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And one of the things about the Christian life is when you dedicate your life fully to Jesus, you actually find life. And we need to be careful sometimes of the things we just hang on to, which we think give us life, rather than the mission of God which gives us life. 
And secondly, we note in Nehemiah 7 the tremendous generosity of the people of God. When people knew God's plan, they sacrificially and generously gave to God. And that was before the houses were even rebuilt. Nehemiah must have said, this is the plan, guys. This is what God said. And people gave before the repopulation of the city because the houses were still in ruins. And I think to fulfill our God-given vision and mission to become a flourishing Christian community that connects us to God and one another will be costly. Ministry and mission always costs. Mike Breen, quite a famous English preacher who now lives in America, said this. He said, money is the muscle of mission. And this requires giving first to the Lord. And I just want to end by talking a little bit about that. This is not to bring condemnation or anything upon anyone. It's simply a truth that I found and I know many of you have found, and that is this. If we give first to the Lord and not tip him with the leftovers... God will provide our needs. I remember being a Christian for about 15 years, and I have to say that um, our monetary giving to God when we used to come to church was kind of, what have I got left this month? What can I afford to give? Oh, I'll give that. Oh, no, I better give a little bit less because we've got to do this and do that. And it was kind of like, I mean, that was where my faith was at for many years. But then I got filled with the Spirit in 1994, and I was challenged at that time. During that time, I was off work, I was on a very low income, I was on a sickness benefit, and I was challenged to give first to the Lord. And so I can remember the very first Sunday when we did that. We worked out our income, and we said, right, we're going to give a percentile of this, and we're going to do it faithfully every week. And I can remember the first time we ever did that, I was absolutely shaking. I was so frightened because <laughs> I thought, oh, gosh, we're not going to have any food to, to feed the family and da-da-da-da-da. But you know what I discovered? God was so faithful. When we gave first to the Lord, he made sure all our needs were met. And Paul says this. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Notice what he said, give first to the Lord. And that is a real principle because, you know, Jesus said this, you cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to choose one. And I think giving is a very important way of demonstrating actually where our hearts really lie because it's about trust. It's not about, oh, you have to give 10%, you know, that whole thing of 10%. I mean, why give 10% when Jesus gave his whole life for it? Let's give everything to him. That doesn't mean to say put everything in the offering, but what I mean is we give everything to him. We give our lives to him. We give our time to him. We give our finances to him. And I want to say as we consider, uh, as we close today, as we're reminded of our vision and mission to be a flourishing Christian community and connecting people to God and to one another. I want to ask three questions of us today. The first one is this. Maybe it's a chance today to seriously review your own giving to the God's mission.
and his church? Do we really believe that the church is the hope of the world? Secondly, maybe today it's a chance to refresh our own thinking of what the church actually is. It's not just a building. It's a community. And to think of church as being where we have, where we ever we meet, two, to get, two or three together in his name, that's where the church is. And if we can start to think that way, that might refresh the way that we see the mission of the church. And thirdly, um, maybe today it's a chance to make Christ the very center of your life. Is Christ the reason and the purpose for you living, for me living? Or is there some other agenda? And, and I think that's a challenge. I've been challenged by this very much in writing this and thinking about it. And I'd like us to pause now just for a couple of minutes and just to sit quietly. And if anything is going to settle on your heart, just allow the Lord to speak to you. Sometimes it's a wrestle and a fight. You think, oh, maybe God's speaking to me about this. Well, if he is, I'd ask you just to say, well, Lord, I want to listen. Let's pray. Spirit of God, stir our hearts. Fill us afresh. Help us, O oh Lord, each one of us to move forward. Help us as a church, as a community, to move forward together, Lord, just as they did in Nehemiah's day. Lord, may you become central in our city, in our nation, once again. We sang that beautiful song, Holy Spirit, may your church hunger for your ways. Lord, bless, I pray, all my friends here today, all those who've listened, and we pray that you would guide us in these days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.